Thanks for joining us for the Montclair Public Library podcast, Check Us Out. I'm Peter Coyle, Director of the Library. In this episode, we'll hear from Julia Phillips, a Montclair native, who will talk about her debut novel, Disappearing Earth. But before we hear from her, we'll hear from some library staff. So let's hear from Molly and Alex, who are going to talk about some of the great things the library has to offer. Hi, this is Molly from the Adult Services Department. And hey, this is Alex, also from the Adult Services Department. We're going to tell you about some upcoming programs in October, as well as a resource that you can use with your Montclair Library card that you may not know about. So I'm going to talk about a series called The 400 Years of Inequality. 2019 marks 400 years since the arrival in 1619 at Jamestown of the first Africans to be sold into bondage. So people across the United States are coming together to acknowledge and reflect upon this anniversary. And we are planning programs that are observances of this anniversary during the week of um, October 12th through 19th, as well as other dates in October. We have a few different types of programs going on, including two community reads on Wednesday, October 2nd at 7 and Thursday, October 10th at 2 p.m. We are going to discuss The Coming by Daniel Black. We're also going to have several film screenings, including of the series Emancipation Road. It's a seven-episode series on Canopy. We'll also have several lectures and talks for this series, including Slavery's Descendants Shared Legacies of Race and Reconciliation on October 15th at 7 p.m., City of Refuge, Dismal Plantation in the Revolutionary Era Great Dismal Swamp on Saturday, October 19th at 3 p.m., as well as another lecture called Plea Bargaining and the Problem of Innocence on Monday, November 4th at 7 p.m. These are all free programs around this theme. If you want a full list of all the programs we're doing for this series, because there's a little bit more than that, go to montclairlibrary.org inequality. And for more events going on in October, because we have a lot going on, you can go to montclairlibrary.org calendar. And Alex is going to tell you also about a free resource that you can use with your library card. Your library card gives you access to many different free resources, and we want to highlight one for you in case you haven't heard of it yet. Sure, and I'd like to introduce to our listeners out there, Tutor.com. Tutor.com is real-time, on-demand, live tutoring for all your schooling needs. It covers a whole bunch of aspects of education. There is a college resources tab that you can take advantage of. It helps you with selecting college, common applications, essays, choosing your major, financial aid, and testing strategies. There are also subject guides for various maths, science, English, social studies, your AP classes, all your tests, SATs, PSATs, ACTs, and SAT subject tests, as well as your various math subjects that it tutors you in, there is a graphing calculator feature that is available through tutor.com. It is also a useful resource for people who are seeking jobs right now. There is a feature where you can drop off your resume and cover letter, and the tutors give you nice feedback on it. I do want to just jump in and say that the tutors are typically available between 3 p.m. and 11 p.m., so it's not 24-7, but there's a nice window where you can talk to a real live person in real time, which is really helpful. Whether you're a student or an adult with job-seeking needs, they're very helpful. Tutor.com does have an option that gives you help practicing for your citizenship test, so please take advantage of that. I was also informed that they do cover for ASVAB, which is the armed services exam. So if that's one uh, option you're pursuing, tutor.com can help you on that. 
And to access Tutor.com at home or in the library, you would go to our website, MontclairLibrary.org, click on eLibrary, and then on the side of that page, there is a link that says Complete List of Databases. You just click on that and you would just go all the way down to pretty much the end of the page. Everything's in alphabetical order, so you go down to T for Tutor.com and that will take you into the site. Okay, so this is Alex and Molly signing off. Goodbye. Later, Gators. <laughs> okay, I don't know. I'm sorry. everybody. I'm Kirsten. I'm the young adult librarian here at Montclair Public Library. I'm going to be talking about some new and upcoming young adult books and graphic novels for this fall. And I'm also here with my colleague. Hi, I'm Ken. I'm the collection manager and I'm here to talk about new adult titles that are coming out this fall. Great. All right. So without further ado, I guess we'll start with a couple titles that are already available. First, we've got Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me by Mariko Tamaki and Rosemary Valero O'Connell. This is a graphic novel from the creator of Skim, and that's One Summer. Beautifully drawn. It's a sweet romantic comedy. Centers on the relationship between two high school girls, Freddie and the titular Laura Dean. Freddie and Laura Dean's on-again, off-again romance leads Freddie to consult help from a mystic, an advice columnist, and new friends. Um, it's funny, it's romantic, it's sweet, beautiful art. It ultimately leads to an important message about seeking out healthy relationships rather than toxic ones. Uh, another title that I wanted to mention that we've already got in our collection is called The Downstairs Girl by Stacey Lee. It's new historical fiction about a lady's maid named Jo Kwan who lives in Atlanta in 1890 um, and who becomes an advice columnist under a pseudonym. It's an important own voices story. It brings attention to the life of a Chinese-American girl in a historical setting in which her community was highly marginalized. It's captivating and still manages to be really uplifting at the end. And then upcoming in September, we've got a new graphic novel from Tilly Walden called Are You Listening? Tilly Walden, you might be familiar with. She's the author of Spinning and On a Sunbeam. This title is sure to feature the same great artwork, LGBT characters, and the sensitive storytelling that we've come to expect from her. The title centers on the story of two young women whose paths cross as they are both on the run in Texas. Under their tense circumstances, they form a bond and try to reckon with their pasts and their ability to trust each other. Also coming later in September, we have a new title from Scott Westerfeld, uh, Shatter City. So it's dystopian fantasy from the author of the Ugly series that focuses on twin sisters living in a city under attack. One is forced to take on the identity of the other. It's great if you've enjoyed his previous series. And also, if you are a fan of series like The Hunger Games or Divergent. Later this fall, October, we've got two more that I'd like to mention. Um, the first being The Fountains of Silence by Ruda Sepetis. More historical fiction. This one's set in Franco-era Spain. As with all of her works, it promises to be meticulously researched, highly accurate, and featuring excerpts from primary sources. And then finally, we've got a new title from Veronica Roth, author of the Divergent series and Carve the Mark. This is a book of short stories called The End and Other Beginnings, Stories from the Future. These are set in universes similar to those she created in her previous series, including some crossover with the Carve the Mark series. The new anthology has been compared to Black Mirror for tween and teen readers, so definitely something interesting if you like sort of dystopian, darker fiction. All right, I'm going to turn it over to Ken to share about the new adult titles. Okay. I'm a summer person myself, but one of the things that I do like about fall is that so many good books come out and a lot of big titles are coming and a few have already arrived. Probably the biggest book this fall, at least the one that's getting the most attention, is 
The Testaments by Margaret Atwood, which is her long-awaited sequel to The Handmaid's Tale. And from what I understand, it does not correspond with what is going on in the television version of The Handmaid's Tale. It's her own take on what happened after the events of the first book. Another big one that's already available is The Institute by Stephen King, his latest book chronicling sort of gifted children and the people who prey upon them. The third that's available already is Emma Donahue's new book, Akin. She is the author of Room, which was made into the film with Brie Larson several years ago. The other two books I think that are getting the most advanced attention right now are The Water Dancer, which is the debut novel by the writer Ta-Nehisi Coates, who won the Pulitzer Prize for his memoir a few years ago. This is his first published fiction also, a book called Find Me by Andre Asiman, which is the sequel to Call Me By Your Name, which was also a very well-received movie several years ago. Also coming up in the fall are a new collection of stories by Zadie Smith called Grand Union, a novel called Red at the Bone by Jacqueline Woodson. This is an adult novel, although she, is also, she also writes uh, young adult fiction. A biography of Carrie Fisher called A Life on the Edge by Sheila Weller. Patty Smith has another memoir imminent called Year of the Monkey. This is her third in her series that started with Just Kids, her book about her friendship with Robert Mablethorpe. And there's also some series books. I am a big fan of, of series occasionally, and some of my favorites are Do This Fall. Um, Martin Cruz Smith, who writes the Arkady Renko novels, and they're very sporadic. They're, he's not a every year kind of writer. He has a new Arkady Renko book coming out called The Siberian Dilemma, the ninth in the series that began with Gorky Park back in the 1980s. James R. Ben, who's a retired librarian, has a great series of World War II set mysteries, the Billy Boyle mysteries. His new novel is already available called When Hell Struck Twelve. And this is an interesting one. Nicholas Meyer, who revived the Sherlock Holmes stories back in the 1970s with a 7% solution before he went on to become a film director and directed several of the Star Trek movies, has come back to Holmes and has a new Sherlock Holmes novel coming out next month called The Adventure of the Peculiar Protocols. And the last book I want to call your attention to is The Great John Le Carre, the spy novelist who has been around since the 1960s, has a new novel do. He is 88 years old. He says this is his last novel. I hope not, but it's called Agent Running in the Field. And I read his previous novel, A Legacy of Spies, and it was as brilliant as anything he's ever done. So I'm kind of looking forward to seeing this one and hoping it's not his final novel. So that's a lot of what we have coming up in the fall. And some of them are already available and you can put holds on them. And some of them you can just keep an eye out for for when they're available. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next recording with more recommendations. Hi, this is Salwa Shami. I'm the assistant director of the Montclair Public Library, and I'm very excited to be sitting here with Julia Phillips, who just published her first book called Disappearing Earth, which was featured as a top pick in the May issue of Book Page and described by the New York Times as a superb debut. Julia's writing has been supported by a Fulbright Fellowship and has appeared in The Atlantic, Slate, and the Paris Review. She grew up in Montclair, and she currently lives in Brooklyn. 
So hi, Julia. Hi. Thanks for coming today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm very excited. I really loved your book and I'm, I'm super excited. I'm very curious about your process and everything. So I'm, I'm really excited about asking you some questions. Um, so you grew up in Montclair. What are some of the fun things you remember about your youth here? Gosh, it's funny because so much of my memories of Montclair are dominated by memories of my the end of my time in Montclair, which was sort of high school teenage uh -huh. angst. But I still have so many friends from Montclair. In fact, most of the friends I see <laughs> are these days are folks that I grew up with in Montclair. I'm in a book club with folks from Montclair. And I realize as I get farther away from those high school feelings, how much I treasure and, and hold on to fond memories from Montclair. So I definitely remember, <laughs> I'm trying to think, like going to Bonjour Montclair and eating a lot of crepes in high school, <laughs> skipping a lot of class, which I probably shouldn't say. <laughs> but those were always very, very fond and happy memories. Eating bagels and like going sledding on that sled hill by the Iris Gardens. Oh, wow. And going to summer camp, day camp when I was little at the PRCA by the skating rink. I don't know if the PRCA even still exists. These are childhood, childhood memories. <laughs> but my whole, my family moved here when I was four and I left Montclair when I was 18 to go to college. So my whole childhood was here and, and every single childhood joy that happened, happened here. Oh, that's, that's really wonderful. It's a great town. <laughs> it's a really, really yeah. great town, really special place and special people. Do you still have a favorite place in town that you like? I still really love, oh, I really love Cuban Pete's. Oh. Really love Cuban Pete's. <laughs> um, I don't know if Cafe Eclectic still exists, but when, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, when I was in high school and middle school, Cafe Eclectic was where we spent all of our time and we would nurse a tea there for hours and hours. <laughs> Bonjour Montclair, which is at Watchung Plaza, was a very favorite place. And I was also pretty obsessed with the used bookstore, Montclair Book Center. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm realizing now that as I think about these favorite places, I may not have been their favorite uh, clientele because there was a lot of loitering around you know, uh, the Montclair Book Center for hours and hours and hours and very little purchasing of books. <laughs> oh, well. Loved it. Well, Loved it must it. have rubbed off, right? <laughs> uh, I hope. Yeah. So there, there's this adorable picture that apparently your mother sent us <laughs> at the library from the Montclair Times from 1995, where you participated in a Write Your Own Book four-week series at the library. Do you remember participating? <laughs> yes, I remember. I remember coming in with a very high concept novel, which was a murder mystery about where a dead body was found in a snowman. And so then they were trying to investigate who killed this person and put them in the snowman. And they couldn't do the forensics of time of death because they, this person's body had been frozen in the snowman for so long. This is very dark, and I was seven years old, and I believe that this plot was stolen wholesale from a different book, maybe a Goosebumps book or like a <laughs> Christopher Pike Fear Street book, but I really came in with a plot that was plucked right from another book, very confident in it. And I spent a lot of time in this course, maybe all of the four weeks, but definitely at least two weeks, drawing the cover of the book, which had a snowman and, you know, kind of spooky, like a detective in the background. And I even drew, <laughs> I, um, I drew a Caldecott honor oh on gosh. the book. Because you were I, seven years old. Yes, I was knew... very confident in my wow. story. <laughs> you knew about the Caldecott Yes, I, I'll, I'll 
all the books I had at home had Caldecott medals on them. So I thought this should have a Caldecott medal on it. And then I kind of really lost steam when it came to writing the actual story. Um, (laughs) We had these, we had these blank white hardcover books where you could draw the cover and then write the the story on the inside. And I I spent a lot of time on the cover, um, not so much on the inside of the book, but very fond memories of of that snowman drama. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. So what did the library mean to you when you lived in Montclair? It's funny, I came here to meet some folks this morning and I had um, waves of what the library meant to me when I was growing up in Montclair, which was very much around school. As soon as I walked in, I thought, oh my gosh, I need to ask a librarian for help researching a, a paper about Mayan temples. Or so, you know, I felt very strongly like I have an assignment that's both exciting and imminently due, and I need to be helped with it, oh <laughs> help gosh. doing the research. It feels like, um, I think as I was getting out of high school, we began... That can't quite be right, but certainly, I don't. I imagine it's still the case that school kids do a lot of research in person, in print, in libraries. But certainly, when I was in school, that was how we did our research for for everything, and that's really my main, my overpowering association wow. with the library. I think I spent so many hours here <laughs> doing homework. Yeah. Well, that, that's awesome. That's what we're here for, partly. Yeah. Um, so now that you live in Brooklyn, do you still use the library? Well, it's funny because now that I live now in my adult life, I use the library all the time, but for very different, different things. Reasons, yeah. So I um, am a very avid ebook reader, and I am obsessed with the OverDrive app and borrowing ebooks through the library. So. Um, Getting into the book a little bit more. So The Disappearing Earth is, um, in my head, sometimes I think uh, a literary thriller set in this place, Kamchatka, this region of Russia in which two young girls are go missing. And then that disappearance affects a community around them, especially a community of women and girls around them. So these two young sisters disappear at the start of the book, and then the shockwaves from that disappearance go out to their neighbors and their relatives and their friends, but also folks who are more peripherally connected to the crime and who are grappling with the ways in which their actions sort of both reinforce and push back against the violence that they're reading about in the news. So um, you lived in Kamchatka? Is that yeah. my pronoun? Kamchatka. Kamchatka. Yeah. Um, so that's the area in Russia where the story is set. So how long did you live there? I was there for about a year and a half. So I spent a year there um, in 2011 to 2012. And okay. then I came back and started writing the manuscript. And then I went back with a draft in summer 2015 to sort of do some final research and then came back to the U.S. again. How did, how did you go about doing your research? Did you interview people and what, what kinds of things did you do? Yeah, it was, it was interesting. I, I wasn't quite sure how to go about doing the research because when I went there, I knew I wanted to write a work of fiction about Kamchatka, about the community there. And so I had this grant to go and live there for a year 
but I didn't yet have a clear idea of what that fiction would look like, really. And, and part of what I was trying to do there was discover stories, and I didn't quite know in what direction those stories would take me. But I was funded for a year of creative writing research, which was incredible and life-changing. So what does creative writing research look like? I don't know. For me, it looked like sort of chasing every opportunity to talk to people or travel or see new things or have new experiences uh, to try to push myself out of my comfort zone over and over again and learn a lot. And so sometimes I interviewed people. I interviewed anyone who would let me interview them. I would go to people's houses and uh, tag along at, at people's work and take classes and basically do whatever I could that would let me be in contact with other people, which is not how I usually live my life at home. I spend a lot of time not in contact with other people. For example, while I was working on this book, I was freelancing, I was freelance editing as my day job, so like copy editing. So I spent four years basically inside my house not talking to anybody. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so being in Kamchatka and talking to so many people was a really valuable uh, way to not just research these people in Kamchatka, but research people in general and, and better understand um, their interests and desires and needs and appetites. So it was really a great time. Did you communicate in English with them? Not, um, mostly not. I, so I studied Russian for six years before I went there for the first time. Oh, wow. And I'd lived in Moscow for four months before mm -hmm. that. So I had spent time in Russia before and, and had studied Russian in the past. And part of the process of getting this grant was sort of proving or exhibiting Russian language abilities. Mm -hmm. And so most of the people I talked to, I talked to in Russian. And increasingly, that was the case as I was there for longer. When I was first there, I found that the first friends I made were often people who had very strong English and, and were drawn to me in part because they had that fluency. But they were very kind and generous with their time. And, and as we developed our friendships, they were really happy to give me opportunities to practice my Russian more and more. And also connect me with folks who only spoke Russian and, and with whom I could communicate only in Russian. So I would say probably 95% of my time there, my conversations there were in Russian. Wow. Yeah. So did you start actually writing the book while you were there? I didn't. So I didn't. I did that year of research. I got back to the U.S. I spent another year sort of sitting on almost two years, actually. Um, sitting on there at research, I was working at that on that first manuscript at the time and kind of bringing that process to a close. And I started working on the writing in 2014. Okay. Um, which, yeah, sort of stuff sort of had to percolate, I think, a little bit and settle, and 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 so I could see what was useful or what was the most promising fodder for fiction and what wasn't. Mm. So as far as the characters. Did you model them on actual people, or were they kind of a combination of, of various people that you it's, knew or met? It's funny. I have been learning since the book. Before the book came out, I would have said, no, they're not modeled on anybody. Uh, they're imaginary. You know, they're fictional people. Since the book's come out and people have read it, I've had the really interesting and illuminating experience of people in my life saying, oh, like, I recognize this, I recognize this moment as, 
an interaction I've had with you or something I've observed or something I've seen or this this is clearly me I can find myself people who are close friends or there are, they can spot like these kind of seeds of fact inside this fiction which is really surprising to me you said you you I think you're spot on when you say are the combinations of many different people it's there are the characters in this book are combinations of dozens or hundreds of different moments or interactions or feelings or people I saw once in passing and sort of stitched together with total imagination and conjecture and, and in that becoming people that to me are whole and imaginary but that do have many seeds in them of the real world. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's so interesting. That's really fascinating. Huh. Thank you. For for explaining that. (laughs) No, it's just you read a book and you want to get inside the author's head. Like, how did they think of this? Or what's their process? And it's just, it's just very interesting. Yeah. (laughs) I I feel, I feel that I'm really, that's really nice of you to say. And I like you're saying that about when you read a book, because I read books all the time that I think like, how the, how they do that? Yeah, yeah. I was about to curse, but how do they do that? (laughs) (laughs) Right. So some of the characters in your book are indigenous to Kanchatka, and they, I, I can't, I'm not even going to try to like <laughs> pronounce that. I've listened to the book, yeah. and I still am not going to try to pronounce yeah. it. So there's the city, and then there's the village of Esso. Yeah. So the city is called? Petropavlos Kamchatsky. Okay. So how did your observations and interactions with Native people and then white Russians come into play in the story? Yeah, it was so... Kamchatka is a, um, an interesting and particular place for about a million different reasons. And one of those reasons is racial and ethnic. And, you know, and all these reasons are, are intersecting, of course. But Kamchatka is a, a pretty recently colonized region of the Russian state. Um, and it was colonized by by. I think who were often presented as Americans, who were often presented with as a notion of who Russians are, or what Russians look like, meaning um, sort of ethnic, ethnically Slavic Russians who present to my American eyes as white, who uh, look like Ukrainians, for example, who kind of come out of a Eastern European ethnic background. There, there were people already living on Kamchatka and who had been there for sixteen thousand years. Um, who were indigenous Kamchatkans. And there were also people, indigenous Siberians, folks from other areas of Russia or of Central Asia or of the sort of Bering Strait region um, who came to Kamchatka as well. So there's this meeting and melding and confrontation of these different ethnic groups and all of those different groups or different peoples also have their own traditions and histories and uh, in some instances dialects or languages, economies, family structures, traditions, religions. And Kamchatka is a very interesting place because it is a, a peninsula, effectively an island, to look at the, the interplay of those um, sort of different histories or different people. I spent in Kamchatka a lot of time in Petropavlos Kamchatsky, the capital city, which is heavy ethnically Russian and heavy um, sort of a reflection of a colonial 
settlement. Mm. It's a place that was uh, a port for colonists to come through, and it was also a place that became um, a Soviet military center during the 20th century. So had a lot of ethnic Russians sent to Petropavlovsk from other places in Russia um, as part of the military. I also spent a lot of time and was really lucky to spend a lot of time in um, central Kamchatka and in villages like Esso or like many other um, sort of smaller villages that are more heavily indigenous Kamchatkan and uh, indigenous Siberian and, and getting a chance to um, spend time with people's families and in people's homes and at their work and sort of seeing their day-to-day, which was a real gift. Uh, looking at all of that made me think a lot about, made me reflect on the perspective I was coming from as an American, because my understanding of race and ethnicity and culture is hugely informed and shaped by my American context. So the way that I perceive or identify, for example, racism or uh, ethnocentrism or nationalism is perceived and identified differently in Kamchatka. And the names that people give to things or, or what I see as tense or problematic is not always, it's not necessarily the case in Kamchatka. Folks have a different, it's a totally different cultural context. And yet there are some fundamental and, to my eye, universal tensions and racisms and class divides and colonial impacts that folks would talk about a lot there. So that's a really interesting subject to me. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of, of how to sum it up, but it's like impossible for me to sum up. It, it's an incredibly rich and interesting place and an incredibly rich and interesting subject in that place. And I tried in fiction to reflect that and reflect on that and explore it but it is a subject that is so immense that you could study it yeah as a scholar for your whole career and and just like barely scratch the surface of it it's really dense and rich topic so what authors have influenced your writing i I'm a, I can say who I'm a huge fan of. I'm a huge, huge fan of Alice Munro. I really love Joyce Carol Oates. I really love Louise Erdrich. And to me, she is my literary, both from a writing point of view and from a sort of author career point of view. She's just my idol. I think she's a genius and she's such a great storyteller. She's such an extraordinary literary citizen and, and really writes about and gives to her community. I think she's incredible. It's hard for me to, to track sometimes who's influenced my writing, but I know who I love to read, yeah. <laughs> who I can't stop reading. But I'm a huge Murakami fan, for example, and I, I don't think that my writing is like his at all or that my sort of stylistic choices are like his. He's His style is so distinctive, mm. and yet I, I can't stop reading his work. So uh, we do have to end. Yes, because... of course. Oh my God! <laughs> but thank you, so thank you, Julia, for coming and uh, coming back to the Montclair Public Library to do the podcast. And we we w- always wish you the best. And we hope uh, for your next book that you'll come back and visit us. I'm so glad to be here. I'm so grateful to be here. It means everything to me. And I hope 
that you will always help me with my research papers. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> my fingers are crossed. That's right. That's what we're here for. All right. Thank you. This has been a production of the Montclair Public Library. Visit our website, montclairlibrary.org, to learn more about our services, programs, or to sign up for a library card. We welcome your comments and suggestions. We hope you'll join us next month for another exciting episode of Check Us Out. Thanks for listening.